I'm David Oakes and welcome to this special pandemical season of Trees A Crowd. This season is different to our usual fare, but still has the same old nature fetishist at its helm. Hello there. Right, a quick message before our resident balladeer jangles your ears to say that this year we have launched a Patreon account. You can find it on our website, treesacrowd.fm. Now, we have done this to not only cover the basic cost of creating the show, but also to send any profit that we make to the environmental and arts charities associated with the guests of previous and indeed our upcoming shows. So if you've enjoyed this show over the years, why not help us keep making it for a few more years yet to come? Right, that out of the way, it's jingle time. Bella, what am I up to this year? Uploading the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Tree number three. Scots, 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 Scots pine. <laughs> the Scots pine. Pinus sylvestris. Right, I'm not a botanist, I'm an actor, so let's talk about Shakespeare. Writing in 1595, Shakespeare gets his version of Richard II to talk about the proud tops of the eastern pines. Shakespeare knew these magnificent trees, he loved them, and at the time he was writing, Scots pine forests swept across the country. In fact, the wood used to construct the globe, the theatre built in 1599 by the Lord Chamberlain's men, was, you've guessed it, Scots pine. The original order for its construction demanded and all the floors of the said galleries, stories and stage to be boarded with good and sufficient new deal boards of the whole thickness where as need shall be. Deal is pine wood. Now, the theatre stood for 14 years before burning to the ground after a prop cannon ignited during Henry VIII, which teaches us something, which is pine burns well, fact number one. A modernised globe, with a sprinkler system, was reconstructed in 1997, but this time using more durable oak wood. Turns out, oak gets very slippery when wet, as I discovered when I slipped off the stage in 2007 and kicked a groundling in the face, splitting his lip open. Which also teaches us something. Fact number two, pine, by contrast to oak, is relatively absorbent. And I'm a clumsy idiot. The oldie-worldy artisanal skills for knowing the appropriate wood to build outdoor theatres is seemingly something we've lost over time. Similarly, unfortunately, our natural population of Scots pine is something that has not weathered time's test. The once great native Scots pine forests are now restricted wholly to the ancient Caledonian pine forests, and since 1987, even these wonderful woodlands have receded from occupying roughly 600,000 hectares to a worrying 12,500. So, I hear you ask, what's the big deal about the loss of Scots pine? Well, firstly, it's our only native cone-bearing conifer, and cones are cool. Enough said. Secondly, they look awesome. Unlike many other pines, our Scots pine doesn't just look like a standard Christmas tree, pointy with baubles, etc. It can grow into a number of mature forms, often quite top-heavy and looks a bit like an extra long stalked giant broccoli. They also have gloriously orange branches towards the top of the tree, so much so that a previous guest of the show, botanist Jenny Martin, go check out her episode, calls them... So one way I say to students you can remember Scots pine is think of the ginger hairy highlander. But thirdly, and most importantly, as the largest and longest-lived trees in the whole of the Caledonian forest, the Scots pine supports a wealth of biodiversity. 
animals that seem to epitomise Britishness, like the golden eagle, the red squirrel, the Scottish wildcat, and pine martins. Boy, do I love pine martins. As well as these, it harbours species that exist nowhere else in the whole world, like the Scottish crossbill, or squinty beak, as it's known locally in Gaelic. Without the Scots pine, this tiny bird faces total extinction. And disco species aside, there are incredible wood ants that make their nests from fallen Scots pine needles. They layer the needles into thatched igloos with windows that regulate the temperature. And if that's not impressive enough, then how about the fact that these wood ants are also dairy farmers of sorts? They milk aphids. They pop out of their pine igloo, stroke a nearby aphid, collect their honeydew, and then bring it back to the colony to recant their aphid-fondling escapades. They're amazing. Trees are whole ecosystems and ancient woodlands full of native species once gone are irreplaceable so what can be done well stop cutting down ancient woodlands for one in my book no ring road or high-speed rail link trumps a wild encounter with the ginger hairy highlander or his buddy squinty beak but also as with last week's juniper just one of the reasons young scots pines aren't growing up to replace old scots pines is overgrazing by deer There are currently about 2 million wild deer in Britain. This is the largest the herd's been for about a 1,000 years. Add Covid into the mix, with restaurants shut, venison is hardly in demand at all, and the population of deer has not been controlled as it normally would be. So, what's the solution? Well, the last wild wolf, the natural predator of the deer, was shot in the Scottish Highlands in or around 1743. Legend has it that it was shot by a man called McQueen of Findhorn. Legend or no... Ever since then, deer numbers have rocketed. As such, many environmentalists place huge value upon the careful and considered reintroduction of larger predators, the argument being that true rewilding isn't possible without some form of apex predator. To me, wolves seem a whole lot more natural than a man wielding a rifle and a phone with a Michelin-starred restaurant on speed dial. Now... I'm almost too ashamed to mention this, but whilst researching the above, I actually googled the amazing phrase, which is more dangerous, deer or wolf? Ultimately, this was a thoroughly pointless exercise, as I used to live next to Richmond Park, and whilst living there, I often heard about deer-goring idiotic tourists who failed to grasp the concept of what a wild animal with massive antlers can do, and yet I never heard of a single wolf bite across the whole of the London borough of Richmond. Q.E.D. Jokes aside, the reintroduction of predators is getting significant traction globally. Last November, following a public ballot, grey wolves are set to be reintroduced to the Southern Rockies for just this reason. The spokesperson at the time said, reintroducing wolves will restore Colorado's natural balance. I, for one, hope it works out and sets a good example for others to follow. Anyway, that's all I've got time for this week. A bit of a tangential episode, apologies for that, but I think it's very important to reiterate that when people like me champion trees, it's not just for the sake of the trees. It's the animals, the carbon sinks, and very definitely the human communities that live alongside and love the natural world. With that said, here endeth today's lesson, and with it, the last of our native conifers. A huge thank you to James Wallace for unrooting the quote about the globe's construction and especially for providing his voice to illustrate the quotations this week. Next week, we're on to our native broadleaf trees and leaving our conifers behind. And we are starting with the box tree. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British.
Oh yeah, and go check out our Patreon account. Thanks. <laughs>